2: Welcome, you're listening to Sports Econ 101, the show where we discuss sports topics from a business perspective. I'm your host, Edward Brown, along with my co-host, Bruce McGowan, longtime sports radio personality. Now, Bruce, why is today going to be extra special?
3: Well, we're going to talk, I can't get the words out of my mouth here. I just finished eating a vanilla ice cream cone. (laughs) That was was a smart thing to do, right? (laughs) No, we're going to talk some NFL football with uh, two guys who covered the beat very closely, Cam Inman from the uh, Bay Area News Group, who covers the Niners and has been doing that for a number of years. Fine sports writer. And also a little bit later in the show, former 49er Mike Schumann will join us. And Mike works locally with one of the local uh, television shows, uh, television news operations. He's the sportscaster for KGO ABC7. So uh, some football talk. The NFL is uh, well into its 2016 season, and this is the time to get into it.
2: Excellent. Okay. And at each commercial break, we're going to ask a sports trivia question. Um, this time, it's Baseball. Sounds good. All right. Speaking of baseball, I do have to say that, you know, if you remember the game before the Giants got knocked out when uh, Brandon Crawford got hit uh, in his elbow at third base. Mm -hmm. If you remember the very next, I think it was the very next pitch, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the ball goes to either the, the first base or to the pitcher. Pitcher's not even looking, but he covers first base. Brandon Crawford could have walked home. <laughs> uh, nobody even pointed that out. And I'm looking, at where is he? Where is he? And he didn't score. <laughs> well,
3: luckily he did score later in the Eventually, so was, yeah. So it was a moot point. But, yeah, it's funny. Little things like that happen in, in sports. And uh, we sometimes just sort of take it for granted that these guys know what they're doing. But they have brain farts just like the rest yeah. of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: and then... To use an delicate phrase. It was yeah. delicate, yeah. And yeah. then the next game, right. uh, you know, the uncharacteristic... Characteristic... Touristically. thank you very much. Yeah, we're both having problems. (laughs) (laughs) That's all, folks. (laughs) Uh, He ends up, you know, throwing an error.
3: Yeah. Two in the game, actually. Yeah. And I mean that was a major, major problem. 200 runs for the Cubs. All right. So
2: this segment of Sports Econ 101 is sponsored by Pacific Private Money, providing mortgage investments that are currently yielding over 8% secured by Bay Area real estate. It doesn't get any more conservative than that. Check them out at PacificPrivateMoney.com. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Sports Econ
4: 101. When we come back, we're going to have Cam Inman on. This is Mark Honf, co-host of Mortgage Investing 101. Did you know that you can earn, year in and year out, returns of 8% and more on your savings and retirement accounts? Mortgage-backed investment strategies such as trusted investing and mortgage pool funds can do just that. Since 2008, clients of Pacific Private Money have consistently earned high yields on their investments. Find out for yourself how you, too, can profit from these real estate-secured investments. Call 415-883-2150 or visit our website at PacificPrivateMoney.com.
5: Invest in some fun this season with this deal from Paintball Tickets. With the largest network of paintball fields in North America, Paintball Tickets is committed to bringing you high-intensity fun for a fraction of the cost.
6: Hey, makes it more manageable, gets my attention, folks. I love the free delivery, and they take care of the paperwork for you. So if you have Medicare and you need help for your back, ankle, knee or shoulder, guess what?
7: It holds 20 million songs from 450,000 artists. Thousands of the best live radio stations, custom stations, and stations created just for you. It's anywhere and it's everywhere. Millions of songs, thousands of stations, one free app. iHeartRadio is that easy. Download the app today or listen online at iHeartRadio.com.
2: Welcome back to Sports Econ 101. Again, I'm Edward Brown, your host, along with Bruce McGowan. Bruce, who do we have on the phone?
3: Well, we have uh, longtime Bay Area sports writer Cam Inman from the Bay Area News Group. He's been covering the 49ers, and, of course, that's a big story because Colin Kaepernick, uh, sort of a lightning rod for criticism because of his stance uh, protesting the national anthem, is back and starting this weekend against the Buffalo Bills. Cam, uh, that's that's quite a story. How do you uh, <laughs> How do you cover a story like this? Because, I mean, Colin Kaepernick seems to be a lot more agreeable with the media since this incident—not incident, but since he's taken this stance—he's become more, uh, a little more—I don't know what you say—the word is mature uh, in dealing with uh, those of us in the media. But it's also interesting because uh, Gabbert has just been horrible. So I guess it's—it's a—it's a pretty much of a an easy decision to make for uh, for Coach Kelly. Yeah, I
8: mean, pretty much for the last few months. Been almost a, a split job you have the social uh, news element of what colin's doing but then there's also obviously the, the game aspect of it and you know finally it, it's time for colin to get on the field and we'll be asking him questions about third down and completions or touchdown passes or or uh, breakaway runs rather than just the national anthem protest and uh, racial inequality and police brutality and it, it has been a it's been a a fascinating story for the last couple months because um, it, it's captivated the nation, really. And now he can, yes, he can take it to another level by being the starting quarterback. But um, at the same time, I think everybody just wants to see if this guy has any game left in his playing career.
2: I wonder if it's going to be sort of like that Occupy Wall Street where it had a lot of steam in the beginning and then it just kind of faded out
8: have no idea what you're talking about. First of all. And all I can tell you is that Colin Kaepernick couldn't find Wall Street with a pass if you put him about a block from it about a year
3: uh, and a half. You know, the thing that concerns me about Colin Kaepernick, though, getting back to the seriousness of this, is he is not in exactly the greatest physical, physical condition. He's had some injury problems, he's had some off-season surgeries, he's not fully back up to his uh, top weight. Uh, and, the, and the offensive line isn't terrible, but it's not exactly uh, all pro-caliber. I mean, is he going to be able to get enough protection yeah, and,
2: back there? And don't forget about the hair. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah.
8: The, uh, you know, Bruce, you're right. The protection's better this year than it was last year, and I think he's rebuilt some of the trust that you need with the offensive line. But the big issue, and it was glaring with playing Gabbard at quarterback, was there's just not enough talent out there. Uh, in terms of playmakers, either a wide receiver or tight end. It's, it's just a ghastly void that uh, Trent Falky, the general manager, has neglect- neglected to fill year after year in the draft. Uh, he went out and got Torrey Smith as a free agent last year, but he's been pretty much invisible for, for this season and, and most have last. So that's the big question is whether Colin is going to be able to elevate some of these other guys' games that need to get elevated.
3: How about the rest of the league now? A lot of our audience are not from the West Coast, so they're not really interested in the 49ers. The Kaepernick story is certainly a national story, but to to me, uh, Cam, and we're talking with Cam Inman, uh, Bay Area News Group, uh, longtime football beat writer. Uh, to me, the big story in the first part of the season, the first five weeks, has been the surprising play of teams like Atlanta and Dallas, the Raiders, the Rams. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are teams that... Nobody predicted to be uh, contenders, and it looks like one or two of them might make the playoffs, maybe all four. Yeah, well,
8: and also, again, you're only in week five here, so a lot of those pretenders and contenders uh, (laughs) will emerge, you know. (laughs) And, And I do like the Atlanta Falcons as a team. I think their head coach is great. The coordinators and other teams should have hired them. The Falcons were lucky to get them. They got off to a fast start last year as well, and then they petered out. Uh, the Rams are a team that's perennially 8-8 eight and eight under Jeff Fisher, and I don't think anybody's willing to buy into them yet because this is a team that still needs to rebuild and fill a lot of parts. And, you know, they, they just got beat by the Buffalo Bills last Sunday, and the Bills are the ones that are hosting the 49ers this week. Uh, the Bills are a team that's hot. They've won three in a row, and you're saying, well, wait a minute, are they for real too? And then, hey, look at the Minnesota Vikings. They're the only unbeaten team. And they're the team that lost their starting quarterback, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And, it, and how are they pulling this off? Hmm. So, yeah, it's the NFL. Every year there's some Cinderella stories that emerge. And I'm sure there's going to be a couple more highs and lows for teams uh, in the next couple of weeks before you really can focus in on the playoff contenders.
2: You know, I was just reading a, an article about uh, bringing back the, the Vegas thing about uh, the Ra- the Raiders moving to Vegas. Yeah. You
9: know you, what's your what's yeah, your what
3: read on that? on that anyway? I'm curious because we've heard the city of Oakland is trying to put together. I guess there are a couple of groups locally, or one group in particular that seems to have uh, some credibility. Uh, but Las Vegas is tempting, and then I hear Cam and tell me if I'm wrong that the league is is more inclined to stay have the team stay in Oakland and go to Las Vegas. But I'm hearing I'm hearing conflicting reports. What have you heard?
8: Well, I mean, just kind of use your common sense. The NFL has never wanted to get into. It. To las vegas because of the gambling aspect they're still gambling there so uh they also want the raiders to get a new stadium in oakland before they go to las vegas now uh if their only option is las vegas and yeah, there's going to be more money for the nfl uh, and there's any relocation fees i'm sure the owners will be willing to go forth with it but uh they have not exhausted it yet and after covering uh the 49ers attempt to build a stadium i've covered the raiders when they were trying to when they were considering their options, and Al Davis was insistent that the best site for the Raiders is the one that they're on right now, and they just need to rebuild a stadium. And, uh, you know, it, It's interesting to know if, if the logjam that's going on in Oakland will free up once the Warriors move to San Francisco, if they move, and if the A's ever get their act together in terms of where they want to build a stadium, because there's that huge parcel of land that is great for a sports complex. Uh, But the the Raiders might be the only team left to play on it. And if that's the case, then they can build a stadium. Uh, It's just not easy to do when a stadium costs over $1.5 billion now.
2: Well, let me ask you, because you mentioned about Vegas and the the whole thing about gambling. I mean, you know, Vegas is going to bet on – there's going to be betting on teams no matter where they're at. Are you thinking that just because they're housed in Vegas that there might be more corruption going on? Is that what you're anticipating?
8: Well, what do you think? I mean, well, that's, that's what the NFL has thought for, for, for years and years. Of course, there's people are gambling on, on the sporting event everywhere, but the NFL doesn't want to be as, as closely associated with that. Neither does any uh, main team. I mean, obviously, I think teams are going to start looking into it more and more because, I mean, you look over in Europe where gambling more, you know prevalent on sports, you can do it, and, and they get by. It's just, the NFL tries to remain a holier than and now, look, and it's just, I don't know at some point if they're going to have to bend and say, all right, well, look, you know, it's not Vegas isn't the only place that allows gambling now. There's, you know, there's Indian I, casinos. Exactly. I was just, just going
2: to put that, I was just going to point that out, that there's gambling casinos all around California, too.
8: Yeah. 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 yeah, but, I mean, it's the whole stigma attached to it. And, I mean, I like going to Vegas as much as the next person. Hmm. I, think, I think it would be interesting to know whether, uh, whether they would be able to support a team because, you know, those casinos don't want to let you out. They don't want you going off to a football game for seven hours. They want you <laughs> staying in there to spend your money in there. So That's a good point. There's a there, there's a lot of elements at play here. Before uh, you start counting the Raiders there, it's just, it's, they're far from, I think, finishing off a deal for that. Well,
2: I'll I tell you one big problem. They wouldn't allow any time clocks, just like they don't allow it in the casino. So you'd yeah. never know when the game's over. <laughs>
3: <laughs> hey, before we let you go, Kim, i got to ask you about the injuries this year in the NFL. I, I don't know if it's any – a greater number this year than in past years. But my theory is that we're seeing uh, players knocked out more and more these days because these athletes are so superbly conditioned, so much bigger than they have been. It's just a matter of simple physics. The, the average player in the NFL back in the 1980s was about 230 pounds. The average player probably today, all things considered, might be 260. And these guys are fast. I mean, my gosh. Uh, you know. So you're seeing a lot more injuries at a lot earlier stage. I'm I'm concerned with it. And, of course, with all the concussion protocols and all the talk about, you know, uh, CTEs and that sort of thing. You know, what's your read on, on that, that? Because is, is it a major problem right now, or do you think that uh, the injuries have just always been a problem with the NFL?
2: Actually, Kim, can I interrupt for just a second because we have to c- cut to a quick commercial break. Okay. Uh, when we come back, can you answer that question, then we'll let you go? Sure. No, okay. okay, I really appreciate that. All right, here is our uh, first trivia question. And, uh, Cam, if you know the answer, don't answer it yet. We'll wait till you come back. All right, talking baseball here. Who was the first player ever to be selected in Major League Baseball's amateur draft? All right, that's our question. All right, email edward at sportsecon101.com the answer to that question. And don't touch that dial. Uh, Sports Econ 101 will be right back.
10: 800
11: your process lower your monthly mortgage payments save your home and your credit but you must act now call 800-274-7312
2: 800-274-7312 not available in all states paid non-attorney spokesperson welcome back to sports econ 101 again i'm edward brown your host along with bruce mcgowan here was our first trivia question who was the first player ever to be selected in major league baseball's amateur draft
3: had to be back in the 1970s maybe but i'm 1960s 1960s can't cam you have any uh you want to venture a guess i'm i'm clueless here and i'm base, baseball's my uh, favorite sport but i should i don't yeah. know this one 1973 no okay, okay.
2: it's uh, it was Rick Monday Kansas oh, City oh, Athletics 1965
3: yeah, yeah. who who played a role with the A's and then was traded be, right before they became great and of course Rick Monday is best remembered for two things First of all, saving the American flag, which was... Yeah, uh, uh, that's right. Yeah. By, you remember that, Cam? It, when he played with the Dodgers, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, when he he with the, the Cubs, right. and, and then he hit a, uh, a pennant-winning homer in Montreal during the uh, National League Championships in 1981, I believe. 1981, yeah. And the Dodgers went on to win the World Series yeah. that year. Well, Cam, we were talking, and we're talking with Cam Inman, who was a longtime uh, Bay Area sports writer covering the 49ers for the Bay Area News Group. Talking about the injury situation, do you think it's any worse this year? Or are we just more aware of it? It just seems like... Uh, You know, every time you look at the injury list, my God, Cam Newton is probably the most prominent player to have uh, been on the sidelines recently. But there are a lot of other guys. Do you see any problems? More problems this year? Is it just football is such a violent, violent game inherently, and you're going to get guys falling by the wayside?
8: Yeah. Well, I think you're you're right on both accounts. One, it's obviously it's the violence of the game, and that's why people think that uh, the NFL and and tackle football is doomed. uh, You know, twenty years down the line, what's going to happen? Uh, these guys are bigger, faster, stronger, which means the collisions are more violent. But but you know, guys, it's not just the collisions. You know, people get hurt with you know just non-contact injuries. That their knees will blow out, they lose their yeah. ACLs will, will will you know get get torn, uh, Achilles, same thing. Where the guys, their bodies are so ripped, uh, and, and then it might be a freak incident where, boom, your your season's over just like that, and. and and that happened. You know, that happened up in Minnesota with Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, the Niners linebacker, Navarro Bowman, tore his Achilles, just running towards line of scrimmage, not contact. It, it, it's and It's just part of sports as well. You know, there's, there's injuries in sports. Uh, we, we aren't on Wall Street necessarily uh, doing that stuff. Uh, but there, there is, it's a big-money game, and that's why if you can survive and succeed,
3: then you're going to get paid.
2: Yeah, even basketball, you know, you're getting these guys having these – you know, a little oh, bit afraid, yeah. you know, non-contact injuries. Sure,
3: sure. Well, that's true. Yeah. Well, listen, Cam, we, we know you've got to get going because Cam is on his way to Buffalo to cover the uh, the 49ers this weekend. Thanks so much for, for spending some time with us, and uh, we look forward to having a chance to chat again. Thanks, Cam. You're welcome, guys. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Uh, you, you too. too. Oh. That's Cam Inman from the Bay Area News Group. And uh, Cam is a guy that, uh, like a lot of us who have covered uh, football for a long time, you know, I have a a fascination with the game as I know a lot of our listeners do not just because I'm a fan of our local teams but I think is if you get exposed to the game as a child as and I sure I'm sure you did yeah. my dad took me to my first NFL game in 1959 when wow. I was 7 years old and I saw yeah. uh, I saw a rookie coach by the name of Vince Lombardi never heard of him <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it was his first year with the wow. Packers yeah. and the next year they were in the NFL championship 1961 they won the first of four but the 49ers that year had YA Tittle and Hugh wow. McElhaney and yeah. R.C. Owens and Joe the Jet Perry. And it was, you know, a seven year old kid, you're watching Hall of Fame players in yeah. this old stadium, Kezar Stadium, in the middle of Golden Gate Park. That,
2: did you appreciate it? Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, so no you, you, question. Knew they were. you knew I, where they were. The,
3: the thing I remember the, the, most yeah. about that game, not only just watching the, the play, but was the band kept playing on Wisconsin because the Packers ended up winning the game thirty four to fourteen, I think it was. And the, every time they'd score they'd play on Wisconsin, on Wisconsin. I why do they keep playing that song? Yeah.
2: The uh the first uh football game I ever attended was the first year that uh Monday night football.
3: Nineteen seventy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which which game did you see? I saw
2: them uh just crush the Cincinnati Bengals. It oh, was it was the Raiders. Nice, nice. Yeah.
3: There you go. Oh yeah. You know, th- it's interesting. We were talking about uh, the NFL this year. I think that the parody thing that Pete Rosell, the late, great Pete Rosell, who was the commissioner back in the 60s and 70s and all the way up into the through the 1980s, talked about parody, and he wanted to see a league where everybody had a chance to be in the playoff picture. Which is and, good. Well, well, it's good for the fans. Yeah. It's not good for the quality of play. For instance, be, to get that kind of play, you have to have teams constantly turning their rosters over. And back in the day, and I say back in the day, I mean prior to the early 1990s, Teams had a core of guys, the good mm-hmm. teams, yeah. that they stayed with, and fans became familiar with them. They they were part of the community. Look at the Pittsburgh Steelers oh. as an example. I was going to say the Washington Redskins. Sonny oh, the Washington yeah. Redskins.
2: Sunny still playing? I yeah, think. Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, you know, he's doing the. I think he's still doing the radio broadcast. Okay. Yeah on, on the on the Redskins. All right, radio Sammy road. Baugh then. Sammy, okay. Well, that's going that's back a little. <laughs> further. Yeah. Sammy Baugh was a character. I, I think he just passed away a he few did. years ago. Yeah. Man, he was a, Nine, a piece of work. Ninety something. Yeah. Go but, ahead. I'm but what? But what I'm saying that we're is I think it's good for the game and it's good for the communities when you have guys that are there for a long time because they identify with them and it's not just the the laundry so to speak the uniform they're wearing it's the players and and the great teams do that the good teams don't do it as much and the bad teams just turn over their roster and turn over their front office and you see this happen in American business I think American business could learn a lot from pro sports if they tried to cultivate the same kind of philosophy
2: you know it's interesting the i've heard that the millennials are the ones that it's like every so often every couple of years they're they're just out you know okay get get a new job well it's
3: it's the the environment though i mean there are they're not encouraged and i think from the start when you get into the profession whatever profession you're in um they don't encourage people to be loyal to companies anymore, you know it's it. Uh, they don't they I, don't I, they I, don't I, set up a, a family kind of an atmosphere that 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 doesn't exist in America anymore. You know you'd be
2: believe it or not you'd be well, surprised it, it happens. Insert
3: I shouldn't say that. Yeah, it does yeah. happen, but, but I'm just saying it's yeah. it's the exception rather than the norm. And maybe that's been true for a, for a good number of years. Anyway, I just know in broadcasting it's always been kind of a crazy. Uh, quilt world, but I will say that in broadcasting, unfortunately, and I don't know if a lot of our <laughs> listeners know this, I don't want to get off on a tangent, about okay. this, but broadcasting has consolidated so much, the product has been so watered down that if you're, uh, you know, one of these guys like myself who's been doing this for a number of years, you know, after you get to a certain age, they say, ah. We don't need them anymore, and they're not even paying you that much to begin with. They're paying you a decent salary, but they want to get – they don't care about quality. They just want to get a young, hungry person that's going to work 60 hours a week, and they can for, pay them – For noth- for practically well, nothing. Yeah, yeah for practically I mean, – Yeah, because it's the glory
2: to- of being on radio. Well, yeah, and yeah. I,
3: I hate to say it. We see this a lot in, in broadcasting, and, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, only because there is so much social media today, and there is so much uh, you know cable television yeah. and satellite radio that it, it the – Attention is so diverted,
2: but they're not doing it on TV though. As, not as much no on much. television,
3: but you'd be surprised. Um, you know, and, and here's an interesting thing: podcasting has become really popular in radio. And if you you can have a lot of fun doing podcasting, but making if you want to make a living doing that, uh, you better be very <laughs> creative to try to make a living being a podcaster because it's it's almost impossible. You can make a little money on the side. So what I'm saying is that our industry, like all industries, has has uh, diversified. But at the same time, I think there has been this end, this tendency to think of the workers as interchangeable parts. And you don't want to do that on the pro sports level to that to the point where you water down your product because your fans aren't going to show up after a while. Well, except
2: for uh, the ones where they just keep buying different jerseys all the time. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I I was talking to Derek Carr of the 49ers about this, uh, 49ers, the Raiders about this the other day, the fine young quarterback. And, he, and I was asking him, I said, you know, you guys have scored only nine more points than you've given up. Yet you're four and one. The Chargers, huh. the team that you just beat, they beat them this past weekend on a botched field goal attempt by San Diego, have scored actually more points than they've given up. Yet they are one and four. And he says, yeah, the difference they had one blowout. Right? Yeah, he says the yeah. difference between a four and one team and a one and four team right now is is maybe a field goal. He says yeah. most of us are eight and eight quality teams, and he wasn't knocking his own team. But the Raiders, up until this week, as we speak, they're four and one. They haven't put together a good game yet. They've been lucky to win four games. Yeah, they but
2: I, I don't know. There's going to be it's like it's like baseball when you get down to well, I guess f- actually football gets a little bit more exciting in the last couple of weeks when you've got a bunch of teams who are really in the hunt.
3: Yeah,
2: I mean, to me, that I like that. I you know I don't want to see, you know. Ten and six, and then there, everyone well, else is, you know, four and four, sure, you know, sure. or whatever. Well, you no, know, it, it
3: keeps it. That's exactly what Pete Brazil was talking about. He was saying we need to have more parity because there were teams like Atlanta and New Orleans back in the sixties. Oh yeah, and they, 70s, they were never. they
2: never got close. Never got
3: close. Yeah. Never got close. And you know, a lot of that had to do with ownership, and the, a lot of it had to do with personnel. And if you find good football people, you know, smart scouts, and, and a good system. Uh, you're not going to let those guys walk away. You're going to pay them what you need because you take pride in, in building a winner.
2: Well, well, also then you get remember how John Elway uh, when he first came out from Stanford he said, "I am not playing for the Indianapolis Colts." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or, uh, were they? I guess they were the Indianapolis. Yeah. They, I think they had just changed. Just changed just from, from changed Baltimore. Back. Yeah. Well, he he's yeah. threatened
3: to play uh, pro ba- uh, major league baseball. Yeah, if you know, he could have made it. Um, that's an interesting story because I, I covered him a little bit in college and boy, you talk about a roller coaster career because he was in three Super Bowls and they got murdered in all three of them by the 49ers, by the Redskins. And I, I'm trying to remember who the the New York Giants. Yeah. And then he, then he, seven or eight years later towards the end of his career, he finally gets to win two of them. Yeah. And now he's put together some pretty good teams in Denver. So John Elway is, is, is quite a story. And was he a
2: pitcher in baseball?
3: I believe so. I mean yeah, That's kind he of typical, was, yeah. you know. Big guy, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's kind of like Andrew Luck. Um, yeah. It's an, another Stanford, uh, another great Stanford athlete, quarterback, who I don't think, unfortunately for him, has had nearly the kind of support of the offensive line that John had. Although Elway got some, he took some shots. Oh, he sure guard. did. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, he had the good legs to uh, yeah. get <laughs> away. Get away, yeah. Get away, yeah. <laughs> All right. Here, we're going to go to our uh, second commercial break uh, trivia question here. Again, we're talking baseball. Who was Major League Baseball's first designated hitter, and who was the first pitcher to pitch mm. to a designated hitter? Okay, all right, that's our question. Um, and again, you uh, take the, if you know the answer, email Edward at SportsEcon101 dot com. The answer to this question: talking baseball here. Who was Major League Baseball's first designated hitter? Do you know this one?
3: I believe you I think do. do? Yes. Okay.
2: And who was the first pitcher to pitch?
3: I know. To I know part of that Yeah, my that
2: one might yeah. be tough. Yeah, that might be. All right, so stay with us. You're listening to Sports Econ 101, and we're going to be right back.
4: This is Carrie Cooper for Guitar Center's Focus on Rock. Shop for the greatest selection of music
7: gear on earth at guitarcenter.com. Over the years, we've witnessed numerous genres colliding with rock music to create unique tracks consisting of a hybrid of sounds, but none quite so impactful or unlikely as that of Aerosmith's collaboration with Run MC for their seminal version of Walk This Way. Join me at FocusOnRock.com where I look at that special moment in music history when rap and electric guitars entwined and cultural worlds collided your music can take you anywhere you want to go and guitar center is the best place to start the journey save up to 25 percent on over 200,000 guitars amps and accessories from major brands get an epiphone limited edition les paul for just 399 an ibanez electric for 249 a yamaha dreadnought acoustic electric for 199 or daddario strings three packs for ten dollars
2: I can get you a guaranteed policy where the low premiums are fixed anywhere from 10 to 35 years. So email edward at sportsecon101.com right now for your free life insurance quote. That's edward at sportsecon101.com. Welcome back to Sports Econ 101. Again, I'm Edward Brown, your host, along with Bruce McGowan. Here was our second trivia question about baseball. Who was Major League Baseball's first designated hitter, and who was the pitcher, to pitch to a designated hitter.
3: Well, it's always been I've always been told it was Ron Bloomberg of the yes. New York Yankees. Yes. Very
2: good. Yeah. That's New 19 York. April 6 1973.
3: 73. But I'm not sure who the pitcher was. Probably somebody with the Red Sox or Yes. 73. Uh, 73. Who is pitching for the Louis T. Yes. Ah, that was Very a good Yes. Good. Anyway, All
2: right. so who's on the phone uh, now? We got
3: former 49er wide receiver, a good friend of mine who we worked briefly together a couple of years at uh, KNBR, the all-sports station in San Francisco, and now Mike Schumann has been with KGO Television for, gosh, it's it's been about, uh, I'm going to say, 20 years, Mike? Is, have you been there that long? 24 years. Whoa! <laughs>
2: 15 minutes and 20, 8 seconds.
3: <laughs> 24 years. Uh, you know, I always said Mike, Mike was doing mornings, and I was doing afternoons, uh, you know, the updates. And Mike got fired. I got fired a few years later because of management change. I think it was the best thing that ever happened to you, man. You got the full-time gig at KGO. You've been there ever since, and... uh Life hasn't been too bad.
9: No, I can't complain. I actually went over to KGO Radio and was doing the 49er game. with Rich Wall called pregame sideline. And then, uh, uh, the news director at KGO Television heard me on the air and asked if I'd be interested in doing some
6: TV. And
9: here I am 24 years later. So, know you both know, nobody keeps jobs that long in this business.
3: Well, in the Bay Area, sometimes it does happen. And Mike also got to the. Singularly good fortune to play with the first team in San Francisco history that won a Super Bowl, the 1981 Cinderella 49ers who of course won it on the uh, got into the Super Bowl by getting the uh, the amazing catch by Dwight Clark in the end zone and uh, talk a little bit about that team, Mike, because that was a fun team and it was a team that 2 years previous had the worst record in football but Bill Walsh uh, had some magic going with that team.
9: Well, I played on the 2 2 and 14 team, 78 and 79. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you're right. It was uh, probably one of the worst periods during the 49ers' history. And then we knew when Bill came in, though, that there was something going on. Because in 79, even though we were 2-14, uh, we, were, we weren't losing games like we were in 78. So, and Bill just didn't have any talent on that team. I mean, come on. I was the starter on that team.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love a guy with humility. <laughs> yeah.
9: So, uh, anyway, then we started that year 1-2. and two. So, you know, we didn't even think then. We were just trying to have a winning season. We weren't even thinking playoffs. Then we won nine straight, I think. Lost to Cleveland late in the year. It was kind of a wake-up call because, you know, we beat Washington in Washington, Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. And then we started thinking, hey, maybe we can, you know, uh, make something out of this and get to the playoffs. And then, uh, of course, we got to buy the first round, beat the Giants at home, and then, of course, the catch game.
3: The catch White game against ball, Dallas, yeah.
9: That one catch, I made the first catch in that game. Do I get any credit? <laughs> <laughs> all right. so if I had dropped that ball, Joe's confidence would have gone in the tank. He would have never
3: thrown that ball.
2: Uh, exactly. You should take all the credit.
3: I get nothing. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Was well, interesting in that game. shoe, sh- I was covering that game. I'm sitting. I'm sitting next to Monty Stickles. You remember Monty? Oh, yeah. He also worked at KGO. He also played for the 49ers during an earlier era in the 1960s, and Monty was just beside himself with joy. Um, the thing about that game I remember most, though, was that you guys actually turned the ball over yeah. six times against the Cowboys, but you still managed to win that game. Well, that was
2: a... It was mostly because uh, Danny White fumbled at the end.
3: Well, that was that was the last play that, yeah. that put it away. But, I mean, how do, you, how do you overcome six turnovers? Well, as you know, both of
9: you know, you don't win in a lot games with six turnovers. And uh, so I think we had three interceptions, three fumbles. So it's uh, to this day, I look back and think, in the heck? I think they had five, if I remember.
3: Yeah. So, <laughs> it was a course, sloppy last game.
9: With uh, Tim Stuckey and Lawrence Fillers causing a fumble and recovering it. Yeah. Because if Eric Wright is be getting the credit, because he tackled Drew, uh,
3: Drew Pearson. Yeah.
9: And, and that would have been a horse collar tackle these days and a penalty. Uh, and probably kick the field goal to win. So if he doesn't make that tackle right there, they probably get one more play, kick a field goal and win, and nobody even remembers the cat.
2: So well, and then even that's
9: how key Eric Wright's tackle was in that situation. Well,
2: and then going into the Super Bowl, uh, if I remember, against the Bengals, wasn't there something towards the very? I remember like Crumery breaks his ankle like in the first or second play or something, and then. But toward the end of the game, though, I mean that game was really close.
3: It was. It oh beat, yeah, yeah. Second
9: half. Yeah. yeah. They, they beat us. They have, they just. It was the first time uh, playing for Phil Walsh that he took his foot off the gas pedal and tried not to lose instead of just you know continued the
3: hmm. hmm. because
9: we were up uh, 21, 20. I think it had been nothing at halftime.
3: You were you were yeah. up by three touchdowns.
9: Yeah, and so he just kind of backed off and boy, they just started driving, driving, driving. Kenny and Anderson can play and the, the tight end had about nine or ten catches. Ross was name. David Ross, I think it was. But anyway.
2: I mean, you always hear you I'm always saying. hear that about you know, um, play, playing not to lose. And it it always seems to backfire. It's like, why do guys even do that? Why don't they just, just continue to do what you're doing? Are you afraid uh, to get hurt? Or?
9: Two and 14, two years in a row, and to get up 21 nothing in the Super Bowl, you're going to you're going to try to hold on, you know. So, um, yeah, it was the only time, like I said, though, I ever saw Bill. Do that. I don't think he ever did it again because they got so close and maybe went in that game.
3: Yeah. Well, what was it like playing for Bill Walsh? Because he was a very, very bright guy, but he was also extremely intense. And a lot of people don't know this, but Bill Walsh and Eddie DiBartolo, Jr., the team owner, they had a lot of behind-the-scenes spats, and, you know, screaming matches. They, they managed to coexist, but Bill actually left. The 49ers, he told me this in later years, that he probably left too early because Eddie was driving him crazy, as good as, as an owner as Eddie was, because Eddie took care of the players and, and, you know, rewarded his coach. But Bill was, was wound really tight, and so was Eddie. But what was, the well,
9: thing? Yeah, what we was it? Well, we all joked that uh, cause Eddie fired Bill at least five times.
3: <laughs> like Billy Martin. And, type. <laughs> and,
9: and Carmen Policy, we all kind of look around at Carmen and said, don't worry, just come back Monday, old yeah, He'd go talk to Eddie, and then Bill would show up on. Monday.
2: But what, what what was the contentiousness going on?
9: Uh, I, Eddie just wanted to win, and uh, he did gave Bill every everything he needed: a coaching staff, money for players. And I think it was more of that. And then I think Bill was getting a lot of the credit too, you know, turning this franchise around when in fact Eddie, behind the scenes, did not mind, But I think he started feeling like he should get a little more of that attention. So, uh, And then Bill, like you said, Bruce, told me years later that I should have never walked away after that third Super Bowl. He was just burnt out. He thought he was done and took some time off and he was ready to go, but it was too late. So that fourth Super Bowl was really Bill Walsh's, even though George Stieffer wanted.
3: Yeah. And that Bill Walsh to me was also, as I mentioned, you know, one of the most fascinating characters because after it wins sometimes, he would be very, very curt and frosty with the media. Uh, and, and it was almost like he was telling the media, well, you guys didn't think we could do this, but we did. Uh, right. wh- what was it like playing for this guy? What, what, what was he, how was he in terms of interacting uh, as a player with, with a guy of his stature?
9: Well, the first year, uh, 79 when he came in, and uh, he had been an assistant coach his whole career, didn't get the job in Cincinnati, Paul Brown gave it the Tiger job. And uh, so and almost blackballed Bill out of the league. Paul Brown thought he was a snake oil salesman. So Bill took the job at Stanford, and then of course, got the 49er job in 79. So he had that uh, assistant coach mentality where he was really close with the players. He had a wicked sense of humor. He was really fun to play for. But then the following year, he became GM and uh, head coach, so he had to deal with us and our contracts. Bill used to always tell me he thought he should make $1 more than the highest-paid player on the team. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because otherwise he would lose control of those players. Yeah, so good so point. If a player was making more than the head coach, he just felt like he couldn't control him. And O.J. Simpson was in that situation his last two years, seventy-eight, seventy-nine. 79 Bill couldn't wait to get rid of him because he couldn't control him.
2: Huh.
9: And uh, so that, that was something I always thought was kind of fascinating. And when I tell that to other coaches, they agree told the to Steve Kerr last year, and he goes, oh, I'd love to make $1 more. Yeah, really. i well, get $18 million. Well, what was it like playing
2: with uh, O.J. Simpson for a short time?
9: Well, it was funny because, you know, back then you didn't get uh, the football coverage like you do now you know, with all the different networks. You had one big game a week. So, you know, a lot of guys didn't see O.J. playing Buffalo a lot because they weren't that good of a team. Yeah. And uh, so when he got there, his knee was gone. But he yeah. could do more on one leg than most guys could they'll do on two. So it was amazing to watch him. Uh, he was done in his career. Joe Thomas brought him in to sell tickets, Gave up two or three first-round draft choices and really set the team back that way. Yeah. Juice didn't really didn't have it. He didn't know the offense. Steve DeBerg would literally call the huddle in the play. He'd go, say it was a pass play, red, right, 22, ZN. O.J., you run a flat on one. <laughs> so he had to tell Juice every time... Uh, red right eighteen, Bob. That's a bitch to you, OJ. To the left, Dude. Literally, all the play for us is old OJ what to do.
2: Oh, yeah, it was funny. I, I remember watching those games. I mean, I you know I followed him when uh, coming out of USC to to uh, Buffalo, and just you know really enjoyed watching his career. When he got traded to the 49ers, it was like I, I was kind of excited because I, I was a big OJ fan, but watching him was kind of painful because you yeah. could, you could see that he just didn't have it. I mean, it's funny because now I I look back and I I think um, Barry Sanders, to me, was more exciting to watch. And as exciting as O.J. was and And as good as he was.
3: Barry Sanders probably could have played a couple more years. What's interesting, O.J. Simpson was a a San Francisco native, too. Grew up in Potrero Hill, uh, went to Galileo Galileo, High School. and uh, You know, what a a great... Well, Shu, you've had so many good memories. You know, we do want to take a break here in just a minute, but I want to get into the NFL, and Edward and I want to talk about the current... Uh, 2016 season, but uh, just to reminisce one more time about playing in that era when you did, um, you know, football players made decent money, but and they, and they got exposure from the media, but it was a different world. Uh, you know, what was it like being a pro athlete, a young guy in your mid mid to late twenties, you know, making decent money and you're playing for a team in San Francisco, which was really, I mean, special. The relationship the fans had at that time with the 49ers uh, was just beginning. They were just beginning this great run of sixteen. A playoff appearances in eighteen years.
9: Well, you'd be surprised. That most of us the average salary back then was sixty grand.
3: Sixty thousand, okay. Yeah.
9: Which was so decent money for yeah, for nineteen eighty
3: one, you know. Yes.
9: So I came to the Niners in uh, seventy seven, I think it was my first year. I was making the NFL minimum which was thirty five grand. And I was a starter. Mm, then huh. I jumped to fifty five and I think seventy five. So we all had to work in the off season. I was selling sporting goods down at uh God, where was it? Down in San Mateo. I think it was at J.C. Penney's or something. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, and then working out, too. And we worked out on our own because we only had one mini camp back then. We didn't have all the OTAs. Hmm. We went to training camp to get into shape. And uh, so it was a different era. We all were just happy to be getting paid to play. And it was more about winning championships because none of us were making any
2: money.
9: Well, they they still pay a
2: big... You know, if you won a championship, you still got paid a fairly good bonus, right?
9: Well, actually, we won, I think I won eighteen grand for the Super Bowl, another <laughs> six. I almost won my salary that year uh, when we won the Super Bowl in 81. Wow. And then I think it was after that season, Joe and Dwight went. Eddie invited him back to his house in Youngstown, and by the end of the night, they had new contracts and they were both making about six hundred grand.
3: Wow! Yeah,
9: and good. went and basically went over Bill's head to Eddie to give these guys these players. So Bill resented that the rest of his career. Mm. Some say this is why he traded Bill and told Dwight his career was over after he hurt his knee.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah money, money, money. It all comes down to money all the time.
9: Well, exactly. Yeah. So Bill really had a problem with that, and I think that created a little problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but it was—we uh, were just enjoying. You know, nowadays, for instance, I said last year when the Warriors lost in Game Seven, they make eighteen—you know, ten to eighteen million dollars a year. So it's easier to go home when you lose
2: like that. That's a—that's a good point. That, that's hey, 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 Mike, stay with us. We're just going to come to a quick break, and then we'll let you go afterward. Okay? Uh, baseball question. All right. Who was the first? baseball player to lead the major leagues in batting average for three consecutive years don't touch that dial sports econ 101 will be right back
1: Call the CESI Debt Helpline right now for a free, confidential debt review.
2: 800-957-6063. 800-957-6063. Welcome back to Sports Ecom 101. Last time for today, I'm Edward Brown, your host, along with Bruce McGowan. Here is the last trivia question. Who was the first baseball player to lead the major leagues in batting average for three consecutive years?
3: I had to be going back to maybe Ty Cobb yes
2: very yeah. good boy you did really yeah. well today yeah, 1907 baseball. 08 and 09 yeah you know then he, did, then he did it for five years and
3: he never won a, a, a world championship he played in two yeah. World series but his teams were beaten badly and he didn't play that well nope. so not a nice man though Ty Cobb yeah so he nah. deserved it <laughs> <laughs> so well listen Mike, Mike Schumann thanks so much for joining us uh, spur of the moment I got Mike on the phone earlier today good friend of ours and We've worked alongside him at KNBR. Now he's, at, as he mentioned, at KGO for 20-plus years, television. Keep up the good work, Shu. Yeah.
9: All right, I got one final trivia question. Okay, good. Two former 49er receivers were born on this day. I should say two former great 49ers receivers born on this day.
2: Okay, one of them is you. <laughs>
9: is
2: You're that right?
3: That, that is right. It, there you go. Okay. See, my
2: anniversary is yeah, well, tomorrow, so I kind of knew that. All right.
3: Your anniversary is tomorrow? Yes, well, oh, who's, it is. Well, who's, 20- the, who's the other one? Jerry Rice. Jerry. Jerry Rice. Wow, pretty good company. Excellent. And your anniversary is tomorrow, too. It is, 27 wow. years. Wow. I don't know
2: wow. if I was born first or married first. <laughs> okay, Mike Schumann, thank you so much for joining us on Sports Econ 101. All right, it. All right, take it easy.
3: Good good talking to you, Shane. See, I I
2: knew as soon as he said, great. I knew he was talking about himself. Wow. He was good. He was a good player.
3: Yeah, he was a decent player. All
2: right, here we go. Here's our baseball thoughts for the day. If a woman is given a choice between catching a fly ball and saving an infant's life, she will choose saving the infant every time without even considering how many men are on base. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. Like that? Yeah, like that? And uh, Bob Lemon said, baseball is a kid's game. It's the adults that screw it up.
3: Uh, Bob Lemon, I covered Bob Lemon when he was managing the Yankees in 1981. He managed the second half. Gene Michael managed the first half. The strike broke up the season, and the Yankees won the pennant that year but got beaten by, by the, the Dodgers, Dodgers in
2: 81. And That's... Fernando
3: Valenzuela's rookie year. That's right. Yeah. Was, I, was, I was working in New York at the time I got to cover that series. That was a lot of fun.
2: I, I kept thinking every time I watched Fernando Valenzuela play of the pitch, I kept thinking he was looking at airplanes because he kept oh, looking yeah, up in the sky before yeah, he did it. It's kind of
3: an Aztec thing, I think, <laughs> you know, right. Mayan thing. You, know, you look up at, <laughs> look, at it, the look it up. Okay.
2: Yeah. Tune in next week to Sports Econ 101. We're going to be discussing <laughs> sports topics from a business perspective and giving away – or actually, ask, we're going to ask some more sports trivia questions. Thanks yeah. for listening. On behalf of our team, I'm your host, Edward Brown. We'll see you next week.
3: Good night, America. So long i we'll you.